the second of the, the good passions. Yeah, right? obviously. So, so yeah, you're welcome Jeff. on the show, Jeff. Come on, buddy. Jeff, if you ever hear, quit ducking us. But by the time Jeff Passing gets to hear this uh, podcast, it'll probably be out for at least two weeks. But at least, so, at least that long. Come on, come on the show, Jeff. Quit ducking us, Jeff. Too, you know, Jeff Passing. If you're listening to this, which you're not, but if somebody who knows Jeff Passing and is yeah, listening to this, the show, you got nothing to do, bro. Uh, Jim, you're shaking your head. <laughs> Do we talk about Jeff that much? I, we did. Oh. I actually, I, there were two more episodes I didn't pull from. <laughs> oh my God, I might be a little obsessed. Good grief. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 33 of the Romantic About Baseball podcast. My name is Adam McKinnon, your host, joined by, as, as often by my co-host, Jim Passon Jr. Jim? Hey, how are we doing? I'm doing well, and today... That's some great music. I like that music that you brought in. <laughs> thank you, thank you, well, South uh... City Riot, my former band. You can check them out. Uh, but uh, our the main story tonight is our guest, Mr. Jeff Passan. Jeff, how are you, sir? I'm finally meeting my brother after <laughs> all of these years. <laughs> He is, he is much balder than I am. Yeah. Where did you get all that hair? Nobody in our family's got that. <laughs> Apparently, I'm the adopted one. Right. I'm, the one. I'm the one who felt like I was lacking, so I needed to add just a little thing to the O at the end and make yeah. it look like an A. Yeah, it really is passing. It's just been miswriting. Nobody's understood the handwriting for decades now. And, you know, the hair, too. The hair, I got to say, the hair. You know, I, I had a moment this morning when I was getting ready for work. I'm wearing a hat, so you can't tell. But I, I got some uh, some product for my hair. I haven't had it for years. I, I call it schmutz. And um, I got to say, the amount of hair that you keep in check with that product. Like, you, you can sweep it to the side. Not you, Jim. <laughs> Sweeping to the side. Put it up front. It's, it's, it's excellent. I got to say, it's, it's supreme, sir. I appreciate that. And and the only reason it's like this is not because of the coronavirus. It's actually because my child shamed me. Oh. He, my 12-year-old my uh, <laughs> back like in October or right before October told me that I have, and I'm quoting him, old hair. <laughs> Apparently my hairstyle was not cool enough Oh. for him anymore or not cool enough for me and i didn't know what to do this was like existential crisis territory because right. for long for a long time i've always felt like i had reasonably decent hair and then to be told by your child that you're you're a nerd dad was just <laughs> absolutely heartbreaking so i mean here's the thing i i had to listen to him i had to at least try something out and uh i i feel like it was practice for the pandemic because <laughs> Because I figured out if I have extraordinarily long hair, how to tame it. Tame might actually be the best word. That that is. I, that I, is I feel like an animal trainer sometimes, <laughs> with, with just this unwieldy, unrelenting beast on top of my head that has no desire to do what I ask it to. And sometimes you just need a little loop of product put it in its place you know it's it's for a guy that with it spends as much time as you do on screen too like the, the a lot of thought has to go into this right i 
you know, I probably think about my hair more than I should. And that's because, <laughs> no, it's because it's longer now. I had short hair for, for two decades. Mm-hmm. And it, it being long, it will like fall in my eyes now. So it's more a, it imposes itself on me than right. I impose myself on it. It has forced you to think about it. Yes. Yeah. It's an asshole. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is. And and I think that's that's the only proper way to describe intermediately long hair. Jim, you know, you have any input I, on that? I haven't thought about long hair forever. There's like, <laughs> <laughs> like a picture of me, I believe, like uh, National Honor Society or something like that in seventh grade that my mother took, and I was wearing like this peach colored sweatshirt. It was just terrible, but I had a full-on mullet right that was the last time my hair ever touched my shoulders it was like a week later i had to get rid of it so and then yeah and then i got older and then i stopped growing it so yeah yeah <laughs> i haven't dealt with long hair in a long time so i i am I, i'm shocked to hear that jim or uh, much of any hair at all yeah yeah <laughs> um so so jeff i i, I want to uh, kind of lead you off uh with a question that we ask all of our guests here and i'm, I'm especially interested to hear um what is your baseball origin story? Where does it start for you? It starts in 1986 at Municipal Stadium in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, the Indians, remember that year, were supposed to be like pretty good. You know, Joe Carter was on that team. Corey Snyder was an up-and-coming star. Brooke Jacoby, Greg Swindell, Tom Candiotti. I mean, like. They had some guys on that team, mm-hmm. uh, but they're the Cleveland Indians, and, <laughs> and it was Cleveland. So they were doomed to fail, and uh, it, it was doomed to be awful. And that was that was my formative years as a baseball fan, um, learning that Cleveland will not just break you in the heart, but punch you in the face. Um <laughs> understanding that baseball is extraordinarily cruel game Mm -hmm. and yet somehow falling in love with it anyway which speaks to how wonderful it really is that uh it can give you everything and then take it all away and you feel like you're bankrupt in the end and you continue to come back to the thing that bankrupts you year in and year out and and it's why it's why now uh, you know skipping ahead 35 years um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think, I, I would probably call myself an agnostic baseball fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, not just because I'm a journalist like that. It's, it's just sort of a perk. But naturally for, for you have bias against everyone else's home team. Naturally. Uh, you do. No, it's just when I don't care. It's, <laughs> no, it's just when I'm rooting for good games and good stories. And, and it's in large part because I think sports fandom is a complete racket, and I understand why people do it. But as, as I have aged, I've recognized uh, the the benefit of day to day being as even keeled as you possibly can be, not getting too high, not getting too low, just chilling right in the middle. And let me tell you, sports is not a place for people who like to chill in the middle. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's uh, you know it, this must be a theme with with um, with uh, and I I'll call back to your previous employee. It must be a theme with Yahoo writers because uh, Hannah Kaiser, who was in your position, was the one who uh, who campaigned for bandwagoning and and the sort of lack of I, I, I for lack of a better term uh, monotheistic sports worship. 
And so it's interesting to have. Uh, yeah, but the, no, but the difference, the difference, Adam, is that bandwagoning, you're always on top. Of course, you want to bandwagon. Who wouldn't want to be with the team that's doing really well in any moment? That there's there's no there's nothing agnostic about that. That's just lazy. Right. <laughs> like if you're gonna enjoy the tough part, you ought to at least have earned it. There don't, you try, go. don't just go for go for it easy like that. I think that was Hannah's issue. I don't think she enjoyed the tough part. Yeah, so that's what like, it was. Oh, I'm just gonna go and enjoy a game. So I'm gonna cheer for the team that's gonna win. I'm gonna sit there. I'm gonna wear the gear. And then yeah, if it changes two weeks down the road, then so be it. I'm gonna go in and I'm gonna have a and, good time. And also, it makes for a good segment too. So True. There, there is. Yes. Like, if, if we're trying to be pragmatic about yes. the situation it's it, it's very i i enjoy hannah's bandwagoning she's she's very good at her job yes um yes, very much. so you know what um it, you've been a baseball fan all your life but your journalism career didn't start in baseball you actually started covering basketball for fresno state so huh. did you always know you were going to end up in baseball or was that like you know was this just something that it was it a strictly business decision to get in to, to get into it yeah, I think it's a little different these days. Just the path that that one takes uh, into journalism. There, there are a lot of people who are specializing in sports and coming in at younger ages than I think back when I was uh, growing up, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, I my my desire and intent was always to go to the place where I could tell really good stories. I didn't care what I was telling about. I could cover basketball tomorrow. I could cover football tomorrow. I could cover ice carving tomorrow. Nice. You know, it doesn't really matter. Like there are going to be good stories anywhere. I just happened to get very lucky and <laughs> end up in baseball. And that was mainly, and when I say lucky, it's true. I mean, the two baseball writing jobs that Oh, no, I'm on my third right now. The three baseball writing jobs that I've gotten, the first two of them at least, I was the second choice for the job. Really? Um, and and so I'm I'm thankful for the people who uh, turned them down because uh, I uh, the reason I got hired in Kansas City, uh, the Kansas City Star, I never, you know, I covered like two or three baseball games at, at an internship. And I knew the game and I loved the game, but I had no experience doing it. And I got hired to be a national writer which is a, a sort of a weird thing to do, but uh, they they realized that I was young, I was single, and I was cheap. And <laughs> those were three very desirable things for a newspaper. There you go. It's it's you probably know who turned still that job down. I do know who turned it down. I don't want I don't want to say his name. <laughs> uh, let's put it this way: he turned it down because he thought they weren't giving him enough vacation. Oh, okay. All right. Well, we'll leave. We'll let that marinate among. among I can can say this at Yahoo. Tim Brown turned down the job and then a year later came on board and has been there ever since. So uh, all was well that ended well there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think uh, I think quite highly of Tim's work. Um, I fight fight for vacation always. But now that we (laughs) now that we know that a younger Jeff with with no family wouldn't fight for vacation. (laughs) Give me a job. That's right. That's right. He's he's angling. He's angling. Um, So, you know, you so you've been covering baseball for a while. Uh, One of the things that um, you have done as well, you are also you also wrote a book. Uh, and uh, you wrote a book in 2016, uh, Million Dollar Arm, uh, Inside the Billion Dollar Mystery of the Most Valuable commodity. Million Dollar Arm? Did you just call my book the movie? Did I call your book the movie? The I, arm. It's the I, arm. It's the arm. 
Yeah, you're comparing the movie about the kids from India who threw eighty six. Right, and that and and John and John Hamm was I for for a hot minute. Like I'm telling you, when I started doing the research here, I looked it up and I thought, no, there's no way John Hamm played played. We Jack get to change. We get to change the intro music next week to just what just happened right there. No, you know what's actually funny? I was actually in Million Dollar Arm as well. Yes, you and a you. Hold on, it was like you, Tim Kirchin, right? Nope. No, you weren't. Who who was in that? I was reading. Let's, let's see if you can do this. You're 0 for one so far. I'm 0 for one. Okay. Um, all right. So it was you. It was. Um, it wasn't Buster Olney. No. No. Um, oh man, I was just reading something about this the other day. How you and um, it was like three other writers were like all in the and you were there all day. It was like an all day shoot for like 30 seconds of film. Uh, if we were in the movie for three seconds, I think that was a lot. I think there was like a frame that I was in. The whole thing was ridiculous too, because it was supposed to be like this tryout, except we were at a, we were in a parking lot of a strip mall in Atlanta and, and they were staging it there. <laughs> I, I live in Atlanta, so I probably know the strip mall too. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it, it was a, it was a very interesting day it, it was like it was a very sweet movie actually yeah like, yeah I, I mean it's a disney movie how can you not like that's disney true movies? i have disney plus too and i have not watched it which is probably probably a, a knock against me as well, well. May, maybe you should and and if you did you could come up with even one of the other people there were like six of us and you're over two so far just give me one. Oh man okay hold on uh it's not, not hard it it it, it kind of it kind of is right now. <laughs> it's really not hard. All right, so it's not only it's not Kirkjian. Um, so who's the one person that you think of otherwise in uh, baseball writing? I think of John Heyman. Actually, it's over three. See, <laughs> I didn't watch the movie, so I didn't have anything. To, I really, I'm just spitting names now. So oh man, because like, the thing is, the people I think of like baseball writing is like I know Dan Samborski wasn't in there. Um, Zaborski was not. Yeah, he's not. He's not nearly photogenic I mean, we, enough. There, there is, there is one very, very clear answer. At least I think. I would think so. Is there any way we guess everybody else before we get down to like the only people that we haven't guessed are the ones that we're talking about? <laughs> I'm pretty. I'm. I'm pretty sure. Like you have guessed everyone else. Uh, Jason Stark. Jason Stark was. Ah, one of them. okay. That is All right, Jason Stark. Okay. It was. It was Jason. It was Jason Stark. Ken Rosenthal. Uh, Scott Miller, Bob Nightingale, and Tom Verducci. How, you know, and you know what's even worse, too? In the background of my of my broom there is Verducci's article in the 95 SI that has the Braves World Series in it. So a million knocks against me right now for, and... Uh, so getting a, getting a nice film uh, debut like that, I mean, that must have been a pretty high-paying gig. Did you just take the rest of the year off? I mean, after that. <laughs> I mean, I you know, I, I I wrote a really bad story about it too. I tried to go like all tongue in cheek, like I'm I'm a big Hollywood star now. It just didn't work. I, I don't <laughs> I don't I don't look back terribly fondly on that piece. You haven't gotten any second offers then. Mm, I'm trying to think. No, you know I haven't because I I probably would like. See now that I'm employed by Disney, like I Ooh, I yeah. feel like if That's I. True. If I asked, if I just sort of like wheedled my way in there, that's a possibility. I could see it. Just basically an Avenger. I mean, you're pretty much. (laughs) You could do like a Paul Rudd sibling. I'm telling you, you could could be like a sibling to Ant-Man. 
I would absolutely take being Paul Rudd's sibling. <laughs> or, or, or my sibling. Yes, yes there that, you go. I was going to say, I would not, <laughs> that being said, I would not abandon my, my brother from another yeah. mother here. Yeah. Love it. Um, so in your book, The Arm, um, yeah. the, um, there was a real question behind all of this. That was like a five-minute tangent because you said, like, a million dollars. You had just gotten it right the first it, time. We would have been so on topic. I forgot. Have we gotten a break yet? No. Where are we? I'm powering through, Jim. I'm powering right. through. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, before all of this, you know, came up and all the 2020 stuff, one of the things that I like how I gloss over that 2020 stuff. One of the things that um, I had a question about, you wrote about a really intriguing topic, which is more or less the, you know, the, the toll and the, and the damage and, and the culture around Tommy John surgery, everything going on with pitchers. Um, one of the lines on the, on the back cover reads, you know, you just, that passing discovered a culture of that struggles to prevent arm injuries and lacks support for the changes necessary to do so. Um, looking back, okay, it's, it's been four years plus since the book came out. Um, do you see things, have things improved at all? Have you, do you see the culture moving in the right direction with all of this? I think at the big league level, it's probably gotten a little bit better. And I think in the minor leagues, it certainly has. But the, the problem is it all starts when we're kids. And that hasn't changed at all. If anything, it's gotten worse because mm -hmm. there's emphasis on two things in youth baseball when it comes to pitching, performance and velocity. Those are the absolute two worst things you can possibly emphasize if you want long-term arm health. Because if you're looking to perform, uh, you tend to perform throwing harder. And, and we don't teach kids uh, mixing speeds these days. We teach them maxing out velo, and we teach them heavy spin rate on your breaking ball. And, I mean, all the, all the things that put stress and strain on your arm. And, and beyond that, the, the number of pitches that you're you're forced to throw because coaches prioritize winning and they want their best kids to go out there and and there is a listen there's a very survival of the fittest element about it like if you are a really good pitcher and you make it to college uh that's pretty damn impressive because that means uh you went through a baseball system that is designed to chew you up and spit you out mm -hmm. and and we we do a terrible job i think of protecting the most fragile arms among us. And thankfully there's some coaches out there who, who do it the right way and who are conscientious about it, but there are plenty who aren't. Mm -hmm. Now, did you play when you were younger? Uh, I played up through like seventh grade, I think was my last year. Mm -hmm. do, I, you feel, do you feel like you were overworked in that point or that Kids around I, you, were? you know what i i was a second baseman shortstop uh i i just did not throw hard enough to pitch mm -hmm. and and it sounds weird to say here i am saying kids throwing hard <laughs> that's a bad thing i didn't throw hard enough so it's i'm not trying to act like velocity hasn't always mattered um i just did not i didn't throw hard enough and honestly i probably was not strong enough mentally to be a pitcher sure like i like i see i see my son who's 12 now and like he throws hard and he's he's really solid mentally up there and i just i don't he's not my child <laughs> that's the, my uh, nephew yeah that's right <laughs> <laughs> The, the biggest, you know, and I, it's interesting because I, I, um, my youngest brother is 16 years younger than me. 
And so when I looked at, uh, he was uh, a catcher, very into the travel ball and uh, playing at the varsity level at high school. You know, one of the, and I got to go to a couple of his games. And one thing that I'm noticing, and tell me if you agree, I noticed like kids are going out there now with, I mean, a really, uh, an intensity that from the outside looking in, I mean, they're treating it like a scout is at every game and they are raring back and firing. And, uh, you know, the, do you feel like not just on the pitcher level, the pitcher position, but just overall the competition level just, it basically starts in middle school and then just never ends all the way through. Do you, is there anything you think that can be done, uh, at a broader level to help kind of, because that's toxic, I mean, in my opinion, just having that level of competitiveness that young straight through. Do you think there's anything that can be done to, to maybe not remedy it, but at least stem it a little bit? Um, I think that if showcase baseball were to be taken away for younger ages in particular and travel ball, uh where to not start until you reached high school that would go a really long way to doing it but people make too much money off it so that's just not going to happen people make too much money off it and uh parents who want to live vicariously through their children uh put them through it and and so you have this toxic combination of people who are ravenously greedy to get money and people who are willing to put it out there and uh, you know, very rarely in America do you see a situation where where there's a product and a demand for it, and and it doesn't exist. Like it, getting getting that out of baseball culture uh, would take a decade or two, and would take intervention from MLB. And I just don't think MLB is particularly motivated to do something like that. Sure. Do you Boy, yeah, it's a, it's an environment, right? Little league environment all the way up. It's uh, even even back in the '80s when I played, right? You'd have just the parents in the stands just yelling and screaming to get their kid either the ball or get him on the mound or something, get the attention there. It was just, it was cutthroat. How many? Um, I mean, as as my I, listen, I think we we could all agree that parents suck. And we, 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 learned that, we learned that earlier in this conversation when my child was talking about my hair. <laughs> well, hopefully the next generation of parents will start fixing what the generation before did not take care of. I'm don't, sure. Don't we, isn't that always the hope? And yeah. The reality. Like, I, I, I'm sure my parents were saying the same you're thing. The, you're the optimistic brother. I'm the realistic <laughs> one. The, the next generation is going to say the same thing. All right. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's right. Um, because, I mean, is there any correlation? to uh when you were doing your research did you see anything about like sidearm as a natural motion is the way that it's considered now right um when i was younger it was like if you didn't throw overhand right you couldn't they wouldn't even let you on the mound right and i was a sidearming kid and every the about two years after i started throwing overhand my arm was shot i was toast but is there anything to this or is this just me blowing smoke out of my tail Everybody is built differently, and the idea that there's some sort of ideal motion for everyone just does not hold in reality. 
So if you're comfortable throwing sidearm, throw sidearm. If you're comfortable throwing overhand, throw overhand. Uh, tinker around with it a little bit. Maybe you'll find something that's a little more optimal for you that you didn't recognize because your body grew differently in the last month or, or three months or six months. I mean, uh, all, all our bodies are just an ever-evolving process. And, and the people who try to figure out how to optimize it, I give those people a lot of respect because it's a really difficult thing to do and to stick with it. It is. It's it, it's interesting because, yeah, you, you hear so much about I mean, there's there's what I found fascinating with my brother's experience. He, he had a, a catcher's coach. He had a different like there's there's so many specialists. Like you said, there's there's uh-huh. a lucrative real industry behind all of this. And it seems like from what I've heard, it's it's almost like some of them are. It's like they're all teaching the the same thing when you break it down. It's just be the abs, be prospect level immediately, and um, yeah, it, it's a it's a lot to take in. I think for kids that young, it's it's such a fragile thing. Um, before we go, and, to some, pro- and, and you know what the the truth is, some are some are prepared for it, and some want it. Right. I, I think. I mean, my my whole thing as a father has always been. I will push you as much as you want to be pushed. I will get you the education as long as you want to be educated. But uh, in the end, I care about two things, uh, that you're enjoying it and that you're a good teammate. Those are legitimately the only two things I care about. If I see you out there not giving your best effort, I will ride my son's ass. because, because Because there's just no excuse for that. That's not... That that's not a quality that people in life should have. Like effort, effort is so to me important to everything. It's the the fulcrum uh, of of who we are, and and it goes everything from sports to empathy to uh, yeah. I mean, it it touches on everything. And being a good teammate, uh, that's another lesson that I mean that goes from the time you're 12 years old to the time that you retire uh, you, you better be a good teammate because uh it, it teaches you a lot i think right i agree those are yeah, i concur those are wise words and we're going to take a break on that note And welcome back. I am joined by Jeff Passan and Jim Passan. And um, so I wanted to, you know, we got a chance to kind of catch up on everything up to this point with you. uh, But I kind of wanted to know a little bit more about kind of a a few like journalistic things like, um, you know, right now, one could argue that you are you're you're a newsbreaker. I mean, you are one of the top reporters in baseball as it goes through a really kind of unprecedented time. Um, has this current search situation kind of forced you to change your approach as to how you break stories, how you vet, how you investigate, things like that? No, I don't think so. I think the principles of news are the same regardless of what the topic is. You're looking to get information and you need to make sure that information is correct. And you go through the same process of vetting, uh, which is either talking with people whom you trust uh, or relying on documents and other things that are uh, right there for you. So the the process has been the same. It's just been a completely different topic. But I, I'll be honest, I think baseball writers are 
maybe the best equipped uh, out of anyone, certainly in sports writing, and I might argue in all of journalism to deal with with topics that have so much context and nuance to them, and and not just context and nuance, but uh, all of these very different disciplines that are involved. Because mm -hmm. what are we, if not economic writers, um, math writers, right. uh, law writers? <laughs> I mean, covering baseball is covering this wide spectrum of things. And we need to be polymaths on a daily basis, or we are exposed very quickly as not knowing what we're doing or not doing the job the way it can be done. Mm. So it has been it has been amazing watching the coverage uh, during the COVID nineteen and the shutdown and everything else. It's it's been nonstop. It's it's almost like the train. Yeah, you're fucking telling me. <laughs> <laughs> You'd rather have it go back to the nonstop that it was before a bit. Right. So Preacher meet choir. <laughs> yeah, it's very like it's it's very interesting to to say that my job has actually gotten busier during the pandemic. Well, it, no. it, it's fascinating too because it's it's almost like you're it almost feels like maybe you're running miles to gain inches sometimes it's like you're it, it, there's so little happening in terms of you know because normally it'd be day-to-day -day baseball you know we should be talking about you know how bad the tigers are and how great mike trout is and and all of these things but yet you're given so much less context and nuance in the sport and yet you have so much more to, to report on with, with negotiations and, and with how the MLB is dealing with the shutdown. And it's, it's, um, has that been, has that been more difficult or like, would you rather, I mean, I, we'd all rather be in a season, but have you found in your past experience, like the, the grind and the hustle of like a season versus what you're, what you're working, looking at right now? I think the difference between the two is that right now I'm acutely aware of the fact that everything I talk about and write about is history. Mm -hmm. A baseball a baseball season's a little bit different. On a, on any given night, I may end up at a ballpark where something historic happens, but chances are it's not going to be. Right now, the story that I'm telling is all going to be part of of a very interesting time in all of our lives, and it, it is honestly like like a great privilege to get to be able to do that and something i try to take very seriously and do fairly and, and be interesting and intelligent because uh if i'm not i'm falling prey to the, the worst impulses of of journalists mm -hmm. um and that's not what i want to do i want to be i want to be the person that people say in the middle of this if i want to know what's going on about baseball and I had one person to look at and read and listen to, that would be the person. Where Do you get a little bit jealous of everybody else that's in the industry? Because it seems like they're all just watching reruns of the 2002 World Series and live tweeting it like it was 2002 <laughs> or we're living in today. I mean, that seems like what everybody's doing right now. And you're over here like, my workload's gone flipping nuts, man. I got way more <laughs> than I had before. Yet my whole Twitter feed's like, just a bunch of people that are just like, man, I wish baseball was back. How about we play a game? Who would you rather have on your all-time uh, Cleveland Indians right field team? Let's go. Here, <laughs> there's a poll for you. And it's just like over and over again. And now uh, here you are. You got this, man. You got to feel a little bit uh, jealous about the rest of those guys, don't you? If I'm being completely honest, yes, I would absolutely rather <laughs> sit on the couch. So I don't know if that's a great characterization of what <laughs> some of my other colleagues are doing. I, uh, 
I also recognize that I have like, not just saying this, I legitimately have the best job in the whole world. I get to cover baseball for ESPN. Right. Like, like what, what more is there to say than that? There is nothing. You've and seen so the mountain. I am, I am, I am quite all right with my workload. Um, and, yeah. and, and if it were, if it were something that was not new and different and intriguing and, and giving me like, I have no idea what tomorrow is going to bring. Do you know how exciting that is? <laughs> like I, I, I mean, listen. I know there's a lot of things that are not exciting going on in the world right now, and I try to recognize that. Uh, as as a journalist, though, there, there are stories that uh, you cover, and and you know they're they're going to be really important, and this is one of those. So when you're when you're navigating this, because because you're right, you, you're given the platform you have, your your voice has uh, has a lot of carry to it. Um, you know uh, the how do you navigate having your own point of view with the objective nature of of what it is that you do? You break news. Um, mm-hmm. Is that a hard balance, or do you feel as do you feel as though injecting your own sort of viewpoint could undermine a story? Yeah, it's a very hard balance, and it's and it's something that I've had to get used to more. I mean, when I you know when I started off at Yahoo. Um, I I could pretty much say whatever I wanted without there being any consequence because my job was not to get news, which meant my job was not to have relationships, which meant my job was to uh, go in and shoot off at the hip. And, th- and there is absolutely a place for that. But what I learned over time is that if you want to understand the game better, uh, then you should have relationships with people because they will teach you. And and it's not out of, out of the idea that you are beholden to them or they're beholden to you. I, I avoid those relationships like the plague because mm-hmm. they're they're destructive in the end to uh, to what I'm doing and to whatever credibility I try to have. Uh, but a, a relationship can be a very beneficial thing where people trust you and, and maybe they trust you to convey uh, information, or maybe they they trust you to write the best story on the Nationals winning the World Series. Right. You know that, and and so over time, uh, I think part of it's been maturity too. I think I've learned that these are. I, I don't know that I ever didn't know that these are people and people's lives. That when I write about them or when I write about something that affects them, uh, really has weight to it. But when you get to ESPN, that weight grows exponentially. Mm-hmm. It's just the reality of it. And so I I don't censor myself. I'm just very judicious in what I say. Mm-hmm. And and it's because I I feel like uh, the being at ESPN, when you say something, uh, it is going to be taken in people's minds the way that they want to interpret it. So it doesn't even matter what your intent was when you're saying something. I've been within 24 hours this week of being accused of carrying owner's water and carrying player's water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, makes me, that makes me feel like I'm doing a good job. Because yeah. <laughs> if, if you can't tell who I'm rooting for, 
And the answer, by the way, is no one, because I don't give a damn. Because my, because <laughs> my, my job is to is to write about both sides fairly and accurately, and and cr- with a critical eye as opposed to with criticism mm-hmm. in mind. And and that's you know that's as much how I approach the job now. Listen, if somebody does something stupid, I will write it. Brandon Taubman, if I didn't write a critical column there, I'd be betraying myself because at the the, the heart of what we do and and who we are, I would hope, is a moral compass. And and he went so far beyond the pale uh, that I I felt like I had to do it. Right. Um, But I I have mellowed in my old age. And... and, uh, I, I'm not. I'm not quite as. Uh, you know, now and again, now and again, something will get my ire, but it takes a little more than it used to. Sure. Do you? Do you? Um, I, I guess when it comes to that sort of thing, it, and um, this is this is a question that just formulated in my head, so it may not be super easy to answer. Was there ever a a, a story or something that kind of? made its way through all of the Jeff Passon checkpoints, except the very last one. Like you were on the verge of, of something and you pulled back at the last second and you were glad that you did. That happens all the time. (laughs) That happens, that happens much, much more than you would think. And I don't pull, it's not pulling back because necessarily um, I, I get like the pangs of guilt over, over what it would do to someone's life. Now, like the, the way that I look at something like that is if, if you're a person and you do something or if your actions cause something, you brought it on yourself. Um, it's normally like, Hey, I think I have this thing really well sourced, but do I have it well sourced enough? Mm-hmm. Cause if, if you get something wrong at ESPN, uh, there's a, there's a large contingent of people who, take great joy in that. And, and I am surrounded by people who are incredibly hardworking and prideful in their work and the name of the company, because what it stands for. And I think what it stood for, for a really long time now is excellence in sports journalism. And, uh, I, the, the fact that I, I have uh, the duty and responsibility to help carry that on, uh, I, that is not something I take lightly. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty good task to have in front of you, and especially growing up in in my years. Right, ESPN was everything. Right, I mean, I I enjoyed the day that we got ESPN too. I was like, so oh, yeah. yeah, I think like and I think days. and I think honestly, I, I think the the longevity of ESPN is is really the the most impressive thing about it. Like. I understand we all, you know, there there are hundreds more cable channels now than there were when we were growing up. But uh, you ask somebody about sports, like period, and ESPN is synonymous with that, mm-hmm. and and that that is still the case, and and I hope that will always be the case. Do um, you know, kind of piggybacking off that a little bit, you know, as we as we continue to kind of evolve into a society that is for, you know, like, uh, the, the cord cutting generation, right? That's, um, I was born in 1986. I'm like, right on, I'm in the thick of that. Um, we look at, we, it seems like these days, 
you know, coupled with coverage from from sources like ESPN and Yahoo and places like that, we look at the landscape of sports coverage and, and related content to that and how other leagues are handling it. You look at the NBA and the NFL and how they react to this. You know, when you look out on the horizon of baseball coverage between like yourself and you look at uh, the other parallels with like John Boy and, and other other um, places that aren't aren't news outlets, but they cover the game. When you look out on the horizon of baseball coverage, what do you see? How do you see this evolving? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> I don't think I, I wish. I wish I. I wish I could sit here and like play futurist for you. But <laughs> I was also the guy who, when he went to Yahoo, um, thought that he was going to go back and take a column job at a newspaper two years later. So. <laughs> When it, when it comes to predicting career paths and industry trends, I'm, I am the absolute wrong person. That is, that is, that is concise. And, and I appreciate that. <laughs> I would trust me. I wish I were smarter. I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got that problem. With, yeah. uh, right now, like the big story right now, especially that you're covering is what an MLB schedule might look like if, uh, if they're able to come back. Right. But uh, what's not being covered? What's the thing that that you think is undercovered right now for um, what we're going through? Is it players? Is it the mm-hmm. the minor league situation? Does uh, it feel like to you like they're already working, uh, you know, towards the negotiation process of doing the CBA here in another year and a half, right? Or what what what's not being reported enough as we're sitting here focusing on schedule and Korean baseball? I think the problem I think the problem to my answer here is twofold, and and I have always found uh, finances of of teams and uh, particular owners very interesting. The problem is finance stories make people fall asleep and financial information for baseball teams is not publicly available. So that makes stories like that extraordinarily difficult to, to really see through to the end. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would love to, to answer unequivocally the question of how much are these teams losing? What are they having to do to stay afloat? I mean, I, th- I think it's something really simple, actually, that fascinates me. And this is not just baseball. This is America. Uh, how cash poor businesses actually are, how over leveraged we are as a society and as a country and and the fragility of our economy in that if it shuts down for six weeks, suddenly, you know, 20 percent of jobs are gone. Mm-hmm. That's really yeah. frightening. Yeah. And, and And I, you know, in baseball, it's about to get really bad. Like there are going to be a lot of people who are losing their jobs over the next couple of weeks. And it's going to be, you know, especially as they're trying to negotiate over these billions of dollars, it's, it's going to be a really ugly thing for the sport. Mm -hmm. Do you, it's under, it's understandable why there's a push, but you know, it's, uh, it's, it's gotta be difficult because you've got to do whatever you can to make sure that it's safe to, to play. And, uh, that's, yeah, involves a lot of testing and vaccinations. Can I, can I, can I, can I tell you something? We, we have no idea what it involves. No, that's the, that's kind of the folly of this, this whole thing. We just, we don't know. We don't know. Uh, uh, we don't know if it's going to be a second wave. We don't know for certain if, if testing is going to, 
prevent COVID from coming into clubhouses. Uh, we just, we don't know. If the pandemic has taught us anything, it's that we don't know shit. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, I, and I wish, uh, you know, I wish more people um, would, would recognize that and would admit that. And it's very, very odd to see our society bifurcated the way that it is and yet unanimous in thinking it knows something that it doesn't know. Right. Yeah. If there was one, if there was one thing that at the, at the other side of this, however that may look, however, whenever that may be huge asterisk there, right? If there's one thing that we take away from all of this, whether it be how fans view players, how, uh, you know, we view ownership. Is, is, there, is there one sort of underlying theme that you hope as a, as a society that we take away from this from a baseball perspective? Every stadium that has urinal troughs should get rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's, just, it's a good thing veteran uh, stadium isn't still around. <laughs> <laughs> um I there can't be that many left, can there? I think there's some stadiums that have yeah. troughs still. I think I, there's got to like be the Coliseum and <laughs> there, there have. I mean, I think Wrigley still got troughs. Yeah, <laughs> you could, I think, you could I think pee where where three finger brown. Um. I mean, should we should we expect more? I guess out of say MLB owners on. I mean, we hear record profits. I mean, that's what I, we hear as fans who every I, year, I, right? I, then, we hear we hear record revenues. I don't yeah, know about record profits. Record revenues, I mean, those yeah. are those are those are two different. Let's put it this way. Um, I I just look at people who have been uh, incredibly over leveraged and and. The way that you get over leverage is to take your assets that you have and borrow against them. And and typically when you're borrowing against them, you're doing that to accumulate more wealth. And this has been a strategy that, uh, you know, multi, multi, multi-millionaires and billionaires have used for a really long time, understanding that there is risk involved, but because the dynamics of society and the market are the way that they are, those risks have never or rarely have been seen. Uh, this is the chickens coming home to roost. And I hate that it's happening to baseball. I hate that it's happening to this country. Uh, I would love to see some semblance of responsibility and uh, understanding that uh, something like baseball is important and that the fact that we're talking about money right now and that finance may be the greatest impediment to its return Mm-hmm. is is shameful and it's and it's it's just it, it's a conversation i wish we didn't have to have and that i don't think we have to have sure we can yeah but here we are right yeah. it's, it has to happen now right we're in the yeah. middle of it so right. yeah and that's it hey listen gave me all sorts of good stuff to talk about this week so selfishly <laughs> it's been good for business right. um, <laughs> I'm, like I'm, i you know <laughs> i uh I, I talked with Blake Snell a couple of nights ago, and uh, he was he was pissed, and he was uh, he was understandably pissed yeah. actually because I no he was pissed at me. Oh, um, he was pissed at you. Yeah, I said something. I said something like snarky, and this is the, you know what this is like a perfect example of that. Mm-hmm. I said something dickish, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, he, you know, he, he kind of made a math error and I pointed it out and it was just, it was like, it was a cheap shot. And, and that is, that is the sort of thing that I just shouldn't do. Not because I favor players over the league or the league over the players, but because it is a human thing that is right and wrong. And I did something that was wrong. So I called him up and said, listen, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. Like, not just because he's always been cool to me and because he did not pour a beer on me, uh, (laughs) even though he was threatening to as the Rays celebrated the wild card. I actually (laughs) had to make a deal with him for that. He said to me, if you tweet about me, not pouring a beer on you, I won't pour a beer on you. It's <laughs> fair. That's, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, uh, but, but no, it was like, and you know, here's the thing. Like, when I called him up, we had a really good conversation. And I got to understand his perspective a little better. And that's that's humanity right there. That's empathy. That's And I, and I know in that moment what he said, he wasn't a particularly sympathetic figure. Um, but but those those almost can be the people uh, who need it the most because I think what Blake Snell was trying to say and in the heart of what he was saying was was righteous and reasonable and in that he is somebody who who sees the same thing that so many others do which is these very rich people trying to skirt around what their responsibilities should be now. It doesn't make him a frontline worker. It doesn't make him somebody who's at grocery stores or in other really hazardous jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes him somebody who feels like when somebody makes you a promise that they should come through on it. And that's a very relatable quality, I think, uh, across all walks of life. And because Blake Snell happens to make a lot of money, I don't think invalidates the idea that he he has this perspective that uh, that deserves uh, deserves well, listening, deserves, deserves understanding, to, you know, uh, and and frankly, seems fair and warranted. Yeah. Strip strip away the dollars, strip away the profession, and and the core of what he's the point he's making yeah. is exactly right. It's exactly it is, right. But, but you can't. Here's the problem. You, like it's very easy to see it in that vacuum. You just you can't. The public refuses to. And sure. I've always found it very confusing the way that uh, that. The, the majority of the population sides with uh, ownership over labor. It just does. Yeah. I, I don't know why. Um, that's a, uh, that's for, another for podcast. <laughs> does, yeah. it, does that even feel like it's shifting? No. Is that, no, no. Not even at all? All right. No, gotcha. I don't think so. Yeah, man, um, that's the opti- optimistic side of me looking it's, at it's, it's either Yeah, I was going to say it's either the optimistic side of you or it's the side that, that we have – uh, our own biases and who we follow and we, we follow like-minded people. It's, it's right. why sometimes I seek out people who are not like that because whatever I may be thinking, it, it, to me, it's really arrogant to surround yourself with your, with people who are like-minded or who think the same as you. Cause all it does is reinforce what you think as opposed to challenge you. Right. And yeah. I, I, I enjoy that challenge. I enjoy trying to argue my point and if I can't argue my point as well as the other side is arguing its point, maybe I ought to reconsider mine. Sure. It's it's point, counterpoint, and, you know, the objectivity. Well, your your job has an objective nature to it, so it's I, it's commendable. You try. I, yeah. I mean, you, you try really hard because that's that's what's fair. Um, we all have biases, though. And, yep. And, I, and trust me, I, I, it's my job to fight whatever bias 
I might have, but but never to let uh, that that human element go away, and and to understand that there is such a thing as right and wrong, and to try and as best as I can, as often as I can, to be on the side of right. Sure, I I, I agree. Um, I want to try to end on a on a on a positive, humorous note. Um, so I, I kind of wanted to ask you. So the year is twenty twenty five. We've gotten through all of this. Baseball is being played again. Um, it's twenty twenty five. What is the biggest? What's the biggest pass? What's the passing bomb that drops that season? The twenty twenty five season. What drops that season? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Back to being a futurist again. <laughs> That's Seriously, right. Seriously, didn't I was going to say? Didn't we establish this? No uh, way. No way. That I suck at these questions. Th- th- this um, is the hard hitting journalism this show is so known for. Okay. I, you know, here's the problem. I want to like pull up who's going to be a free agent in yeah. in the 2025. So, uh, considering that players are free agents after seven years, really, instead of six, mm-hmm. that would have been that would have been someone who was a rookie. Let's see. So first year, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. So that's someone who would have been a rookie, not this past season, but in 2018. All right. 2018 rookie of the year voting. We're taking the streets. He could be on a national championship this year or national champion this past year. I'd say it's Juan Soto. He's got to be 2025, right? Uh, That would be Juan Soto. Yeah. I believe you are correct. Um, Yes. Juan Soto's free agency man if i could get that story that would be dope <laughs> i would love that i i can i tell you something man i love juan soto he i is, love juan soto i love juan soto as a ball player and juan soto as a kid is hysterical juan soto is like the guy who learned english in a year yeah yeah like, man, that's like nuts. and and is like legitimately impressively fluent Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 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 he's you know what he passes. I'll tell you what the the true smell test of of anybody's uh, polyglotism is. It's can they be funny in their second language? And he is funny in English too. <laughs> so I'm I'm very very impressed on many many levels with Juan Soto. Yeah, he's so colorful at the at the plate. I love it, man. Yeah. Oh, he's great. He's yeah, great for the game. Yeah, uh, there's so much more I'd love to talk about, like with that this whole generation of players, like this whole this whole sort of group of guys twenty like twenty six and younger. It just it feels like a pivot point. It feels- let me let, let me say this though. Um, I I feel like whenever you've got a, a group of players who are around that age you get that feeling because they're in their prime and they look that good. Mm-hmm. The, the real test to me is who are the ones who are still elite when they're in their thirties. Right. Like that's, if they have a generation full of kids who are still good in their thirties, that's when you have one of those golden generations. That's awesome. That is, and that's what we're looking forward to. Well, uh, Jeff, this has been, this has been awesome. I, I can't thank you enough for your time. You've been very generous with it. Um, and, uh, of course, Jim, I know you appreciate it too. I, I mean, this has been a long time coming, man. I mean, I'm, <laughs> yeah. Now, honestly, you guys were kind of creepy talking about me that much. <laughs> yeah, right? 39 years though, before you finally get to meet your brother. I mean, it's not like, I mean, we could have met in person. I mean, we were, plan, the plan was to just basically stalk you and catch up. With you. 
are you are you actually 39 as well? Yeah, I'm 42. 42. Ah. So I have a younger brother. I had an older sister beating up on me, and now I got a younger brother that I just never got to have a relationship with. So I look forward to our family reunions that we're about ready to do. <laughs> uh, I know you get like extra tickets to all the ball games because that's the rumor I heard on Twitter, right? So you get like extra tickets. I so you know it's those. true. Yeah, it's gonna be great. Yeah, it's not happening. Yeah. <laughs> that's, not, that's not the way it works. No, not really. No, no. No. Yeah. Shut it down. Shut it down. Oh, the yeah. theme music's playing. Oh no. <laughs> Thank, thanks, yeah. thanks again, Jeff. It's really, really been a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate you having me, boys. Thank you. Yeah, good luck out there. All right. Take care. Same to you.